Good morning. It is a joy to be with you guys. If you want to go ahead and start flipping to uh, uh, Amos chapter 6, that's where we're going to be this morning. And as you're getting there, we just want to say thank you. I'm, I know you're kind of figuring out what it means to be Southern Baptist. Um, if you don't know, one thing about us is we decided a long time ago that we can do more if we kind of come together, if we cooperate with one another. Um, and so every time your church gives to the cooperative program or to something called the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, you are giving resources and you're pooling them with other Southern Baptist churches all over this country. And those funds are going to all sorts of ministries here in this state, in America, and around the world that you guys support us and about 3,500 other families just like us. So thank you so much for, for giving to those ministries. Amos... Chapter 6, we find these words as Amos is carried along by the Holy Spirit. He writes this, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath, the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Are you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. But are you not grieved over the ruin of Joseph? Therefore... They shall now be the first of those who go into exile. That there, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring bones out of the house, And she'll say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, Is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say, Silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in load to bear, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Labo, Hamath, to the brook of the Arabah. Let's pray. Father, we just ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that you would take your words and transform us more and more into the image of Christ. Would you do that even now, this morning, in Christ's name? Amen. As we think about that hurricane bearing down on Texas, it reminds us of another one. In 1969, Hurricane Camille, it was bearing down on the Gulf Coast. In particular, it was headed towards a small city called Pass Christian, Mississippi. And there were a group of about 20 people gathered to have what they called a hurricane party. As the winds began to pick up, the police chief came out to warn them of the imminent danger they were in. He was only met there, though, by a drunken crowd who began to taunt him, who laughed at him until he begrudgingly left them. 
It was 10.15 when the front wall of the storm came ashore. Scientists clocked that storm when it broke land at 205 miles per hour. It said bullets at that point, or raindrops at that point, hit you like bullets. The waves off the Gulf Coast, they crested between 22 feet and 28 feet high. And that night, 20 people died in that little city of Past Christian off the coast of Mississippi. Clear warnings, obvious danger, and yet people who chose instead to have a party. In our text this morning, we were coming face to face with, with much the same sort of story. Except it's not a group of party goers, it's the people of God. It's not some police chief that comes and warns them, but it's a prophet from the Lord. This prophet's name was Amos. He was a shepherd from the southern kingdom of Judah. Even though he was from there, he was sent by the Lord to the northern kingdom of Israel. It was just during the reign of Jeroboam II. This is a period of unprecedented expansion and prosperity and security. This is a very different time for both kingdoms. As, as recent history for them, they have been living in constant threat of enemies Constant worry of war, but now they entered this period of peace as temporarily at least their enemies had been subdued. And they were able to enter this period of unprecedented security and comfort. Not everyone enjoyed that prosperity. The middle class all but disappears at this point as the rich just get richer, often taking advantage of the poor. Injustice, it was just widespread. And despite a lot of religious activity at this time, this was a period that was marked by moral decay. And it's into this scene that Amos steps into the picture to deliver this message of impending judgment, imminent danger. The Lord, he says in chapter 1, is going to roar out of Zion. However, you can imagine with prosperity on the rise, with secure borders, his message fell largely on deaf ears. You know how the story ends, I'd say. Judgment comes. About 40 years after this prophecy, Israel falls, and the northern kingdom never recovered. There's so much in this book I wish we could explore, but I just want us to focus in on the sixth chapter this morning, because I think that really gets at the heart of what's going on with Israel. This is Amos' second woe, and here it is directed at who he calls the complacent. That's where I want to land today. I want to see what happens when the people of God grow complacent. What happens when the people of God start to play with religion, start to toy with sin? I believe this chapter shows us very clearly the effects of that kind of a complacent life, that kind of a prideful life. I want us to just see a few things, where pride leads, some sort of the effects of that. First of all, notice pride's blinding effect. It just blinds us. Look at verse 1. It says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. So so we're dealing here with the people who are comfortable, right? And they feel secure. Now, what's what's wrong with that? Well, this Hebrew word that's translated here for us as ease, it's not just a relaxed state, but rather it is security in a bad sense because it always carries with it this idea of an arrogance, a, a smugness of sorts. So, for instance, we see the same Hebrew word in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 15. There the Lord says, I'm exceedingly angry with the nations who are at ease. So we have to realize this ease of those in Zion, it's not people who have this peace-filled contentment that are secure in the security of God. No, this is an arrogance. This is a prideful smugness. And the Lord detests this. 
So where we ask, where did this pride then come from? Look at verse 13. It tells us. He says, you who rejoice in Lodebar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? You hear what they're saying? That they've had some successful military campaigns, and they've begun to think that their current state of prosperity, that their current secure borders, that that is somehow fruits of their labor. That somehow is a testimony to their military prowess. They began to assume that the comfort and the security that they enjoyed, it wasn't because of the Lord. No, this was due to our strength and our might. Do you see how pride works? Do you see how it just blinds you to reality? I mean, how many times has God taught them this lesson? I mean, how could they honestly think that, that they are where they're at because of their own strength? I mean, just think of their history quickly. Exodus 14, as they stand at the edge of the Red Sea, hopeless and helpless, wanting to go back to slavery, as Pharaoh is charging at them with his chariots. What does the Lord say? What does he say to them in Exodus 14? He says, the Lord will fight for you. What do you have to do? He says, you only have to be silent. That's your military strategy. Be quiet. Or think about when they're going into the promised land, they're facing all these enemies that are coming out at them. Think about Deuteronomy 3. The Lord says, don't fear these people. Why? Because they're so great, because they're so powerful. No, don't fear them because it's the Lord who's going to fight for you. Think about David in Psalm 18. He's, he's writing as a time that all of his enemies, he's been delivered from them. This doesn't puff David up with pride, though. He says, no, it's the Lord who made those who rose up against me to sink. David gets this. David understands what they missed, that this has never been about their strength. Never been about their military might. This has always been about the Lord who has fought their battles. Battles. But see, pride blinds them. And what's just even more crazy about this is this is exactly what God warned them would happen. If you look at Deuteronomy 8, we have this warning. And there Moses says to them, he says, Beware when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Now, if there was a heading that we could write in there, that would be the American dream, right? That's what we're all after. Now, food to eat, place to live, a a successful business. You know, I've I've got everything that I'm looking for. I've got a savings account. How can those sort of things be bad? Why would Moses say, beware of that? Well, Moses says they're bad, if you keep reading, when you get them, that then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. And then just a few verses later, he says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. That is exactly what the people in Amos' day are saying. That is exactly what's going on. The people of God have forgotten their God and they're saying to one another, All this security... All this comfort, all this stuff that we're getting to enjoy, we did that. This is about us, our hand. The might of our strength has made this possible. You see, that kind of pride, it led them to think they were indestructible. Amos says what in verse 1? They feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. See, they They were blind to the imminent threat that this little shepherd from the southern kingdom says is coming down on them. They're party-goers, partying the night away, getting drunk while a hurricane is bearing down on them. You know, they were even so prideful to think they had found a way 
a loophole of sorts to, to sort of manipulate God, to use God for their own interest. I mean, that's how all the other pagan deities worked around them, right? That's how all the nation's gods worked. That's how Baal works. You, you got to go through the motions. You kind of go through the rituals. You, you do what they ask of you, but you do it for yourself so that you can get something out of the deal. In the fourth and fifth chapters of the book of Amos, it just reveals that Israel had begun to treat Yahweh like Baal. If we could look there, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we find these words. Come to Bethel. This is a worship center. Come to Bethel and transgress. To Gilgal and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Publish them for so you love to do. You see what's going on? There's a lot of religious activity going on there. A lot of worship, a lot of tithing, a lot of sacrifices, a lot of offerings. How can God call those sort of things transgressions? What's the problem? Why would God respond to such a a seemingly, on the outside, orthodox worship service like he does in chapter 5, verses 21 through 24, where there the Lord says, I hate I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, your cereal offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fatted beast, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. God saw through all that religious activity, and he saw that it was just a facade. And it was a facade because it never translated into actual, real holiness, real transformed hearts with new appetites and new affections. See, at the same time, all this religious fervor is on the rise. All this religious activity is on the rise. At that exact same time, the people are descending ever deeper into unspeakable moral decay. You read chapters 2, it's unthinkable what's going on in Israel. They had somehow, in their minds, separated worship from their real life. They're trying to use God for their own gain. Thinking that they could somehow fool God by outward obedience, outward going through the motions. Think God doesn't see their hearts. See, their orthodox worship undoubtedly led to and and fed into their false sense of security. I mean, they probably said to themselves, How can the Lord be angry at us? Look, we're going through all these motions. We're doing everything that was required of us. And God says in verse 2 and 3 of this chapter, look around at the nations. Look, Look around at your neighbors who treat their gods like that. See how it goes for them. They don't escape the judgment. You're not above this. This is going to come to you like it's come to them. But they didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to see that. Pride had just blinded them. Out of outward worship, there was no inward transformation. And that, for God, is detestable. God hates songs sung from hearts like that. So here we have, we have this people of God who've taken the blessings of God They've used them to sort of fuel their own pride, and it just blinded them. Just blinded them to their sin. It blinded them to their calling. Remember, they, they've been called, what? To love the Lord, their God, with their heart, with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul. They've been called to love their neighbors, to care for their neighbors. 
They were supposed to be the conduit through which God was going to bless all the peoples of the earth, all the neighbors. And that's what God tells Abram when he calls him in Genesis 12, right? You remember that passage? God tells this pagan nomad who has a barren wife, he says, through your offspring, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. But what do we see here? Israel's turned that outward calling into an inward clinging. You see that? Instead of a conduit of blessing, they've become a cork. They hoarded the blessings for themselves. They sat smugly in their safety and their comfort, while verse 6 tells us Joseph lies in ruins. They are at ease while their own nation, not to mention the surrounding nations, are just perishing. Verse 12 even says, you have turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. I mean, not only are they refusing to be a blessing to the nations, they've actually become a curse to them. They're actually become sources of oppression. And it's so easy for us to read this this morning and to say, how could they be so blind? You know, just think about us. I wonder where we're at. Think about where we are in history. Through advances in technology and medicine and agriculture, you and I, we get to live in a place and a time of security and comfort that is unprecedented. It is unbelievable how easy we have it. I'm not trying to make light of real problems. I'm not trying to make light of real struggles. But historically speaking, as a whole, we are the anomaly. We stand out. And yet I wonder, has all this prosperity, all this security, has it driven us towards humble gratefulness? Has it, has it driven our hearts towards greater generosity? Or has it, like Israel, driven us towards pride? Has it driven us to sort of try and use God like Baal? To try to manipulate God, to bargain with God. Look, I'm going to church there every Sunday. I'm going through all these religious activities, so that means there better be some sort of reciprocation on your end. I'll jump through these hoops so long as there is something in this for me. Or maybe... Some of us have become so confident in our own strength, in our own abilities, that we're just not all that sure we need God anymore. I mean, after all, I look around, the security I enjoy, the comforts I enjoy, the stuff I've got, this is not from God. This is the stuff of my labor. This is fruit of my work ethic. And if more people would just be like me, they might have that stuff too. And that sort of prideful thinking blinds us. It blinds us to our own sin, but it blinds us to our calling as well. We've been given so much. You have so much. I don't know how well you can grasp that. Do you go somewhere that's different? Just just take this right here. I mean, that you get to gather in a climate-controlled environment with, with little to no real threat that at any point today, the government or a different religion is going to charge through these doors and shut us down violently. I mean, that you get to have fellow believers around you. That you get to have a Bible in your own language. That you get to have access to books and podcasts and music and radio stations, all designed to help you grow in your faith. These are things that the majority of your brothers and sisters across the world do not get to enjoy. They can't even fathom 
a life like that. These are blessings. These are gifts. And they've been entrusted to us. Tom Wells, in his book, A Vision for Missions, he says this, those who know the most about God are the most responsible and best equipped to tell of Him. That, friends, is you. He is talking there not about pastors, not about people who go to seminary necessarily. He's saying people who get to sit in rooms like this week after week and hear the Word of God preached, get to grow in their faith, those type of people are the most responsible for the nations. They are the best equipped to go and make disciples of all peoples. And maybe you think, yeah, I kind of agree with that, but it's going to take time, right? I mean, the world is a big, big place. Can we honestly be expected to be getting into all these little people groups all across the globe? You know, I've been hundreds of miles off of a dirt road. I've been down donkey donkey paths, donkey cart paths. I've been in just places that you can't even find on a map. One thing I've noticed, as far as I've pushed in the bush, and and I've been way out there, I have never, not once, beaten Coca-Cola there. No matter how far I go, I keep waiting, maybe I'll get there, but no matter how far I push, there's always a sign for Coke. They've always gotten there first. Coke was invented in Atlanta, Georgia in 1892. And in less than 125 years, they have penetrated into the most off-the-map parts of West Africa. I mean, that's considered one of the frontiers, the last frontiers of the world. And Coke's there. Somebody in Atlanta, Georgia, thought, we need to get our product there. We'll do whatever it takes to get our product that far from its home base. Jesus gave us our commission over 2,000 years ago. He gave us a clear commission. He gave us all the things that we would need for that commission to take place. He even gives us a picture in Revelation 7 that it is going to happen. Like, this is going to take place. And yet today, 2.9 billion people have little to no access to the gospel. 2.9 billion people, men, women, children, created in the image of God who do not know it's called grace, who have never met a Christian, who know, Romans tells us, only enough of God to damn them for eternity. It just breaks my heart when I, I go into all these villages and everybody knows what Coke is and nobody knows who Jesus is. Don't, don't we have a better message than Coke? Isn't the gospel better than share a Coke with Bob? Has pride blinded us? Has it blinded us to our calling, to our clear calling from the Lord? Do you and I find ourselves getting more worked up emotionally when we watch the news at night? Do we find ourselves getting more physically changed and upset when we watch 20-year-olds play a game? Do we get so much more involved and emotionally involved in that sort of thing than we do with taking all of our resources, all of our efforts, and just pouring them towards our calling, which is to go to the nations? Now, that doesn't mean all of you have to get on a plane and and cross the ocean to be faithful to the Great Commission. 
No, not at all. But what it does mean is that every one of us who is following Christ in here this morning, we all need to be asking the question, how can I best leverage my life, leverage my resources for the glory of God to be made known among the nations? How can I be a part of that in any way I can? To to pray towards that, to give sacrificially towards that, to go maybe for a week, maybe for a lifetime towards that. Don't make the mistake of Israel. Don't don't let pride blind you and, and turn your gaze inward. Jerry Rankin, in his book, Spiritual Warfare and Missions, he says this, one of Satan's greatest goals is to get the church so busy looking internally that they never look up and see the nations. See, the real spiritual battle for reaching the nations for Christ, that's not happening in some sort of demonic power struggle in Africa. The real spiritual battle for the nations is happening right here in this room. Because Satan is totally content with people who have perfect church attendance records. He's totally content with church members getting more prosperous, living long, happy, safe, comfortable lives, so long as that blinds them to the nations, blinds them to their callings. Don't waste this opportunity. Don't miss out on using your life, your resources for the only thing that's going to endure, for the only thing that truly matters. What a joy. It's not duty. It's not begrudgingly. No, what a joy and a privilege that God has invited us into this. He doesn't need us. It's not like we're going to frustrate his plans. I mean, Israel and, and all their disobedience, and it was great. And all their unfaithfulness, and it was great. They never thwarted the plans of God, and neither will we. But what a joy and a privilege to take our little lives, our little vapor of a life, our little breath of a life, and attach that. Join in Him in what He's doing among the nations. Lest any of us think too highly of ourselves, just remember 1 Corinthians. This is a good place to go if you start to feel a little prideful. What does Paul write about? those that God tends to use. First Corinthians, he says, Consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God. Paul knows how toxic and deadly pride is. He knows how tempted will be to look at the smart people, the beautiful people, the rich people, the elite ones with all the influence and all the resources and think those are the ones with the real potential. But who does he say God uses? Not the elite, not the wealthy, not those who run in the influential circles, not the wise. No, God uses the things that are not. Did you catch that? Did you hear what Paul's saying? He says, listen, when I think about a handful of nothingness, you come to mind. You're not going to find that in a greeting card. That's not a compliment if you're not tracking this morning. But see, that's the beauty. God's going to choose the weak things to shame the strong, the foolish things to shame the wise. So that when good things happen, no one's going to be tempted to boast in ourselves and say, look what we did. There's no explanation other than God 
for what has happened among the Songha people of Niger these past 11 years that we've been able to just watch and be a small part of. To see what persecuted, resourceless, illiterate substance farmers have been able to accomplish, there's no explanation for that other than God. Don't let your pride blind you. Don't let your pride keep you from what God has called and created you to do. But then also notice, pride has a binding effect. It blinds us, but it also binds us. If we had time to go through verses 4 and 6, what we would see is a people that are living it up. Just glance at those verses. You see that Amos is going to great lengths to show us the stuff that these people fill their days with. It's all self-centered indulgence. And the picture that Amos paints is one of a people totally consumed with themselves totally about their own selfish pleasures. It's luxury after luxury after luxury. Israel fell in love with that, fell in love with a certain level of society. They became addicted to luxury. And like all addictions, eventually it will turn you into its, into its slave. It will just bind you up. These Israelites enjoyed a certain level of lifestyle right down to their dinnerware right down to the furniture. And they place their ultimate happiness in that sort of extravagance. And God saw this, and in verse 8 he says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. See, their pride had bound them up. It made them slaves to their stuff. They had to have it at all costs. Step on the poor if you need to. Take advantage of the poor if you must. Neglect your calling to be a blessing to others if you have to, but do whatever it takes to hold on to your stuff. And then, as we know, when they lost it, when they lost their comfort, when they lost their security, they were crushed. I mean, verses 8 through 11, it just shows the destruction that's coming. And it devastates them. Judgment came hard, and they lost everything. The house is going to be crushed into little pieces, Amos says. They were left hopeless. And it's in that hopelessness, I think, I believe, that we get to see what they truly loved. See, one thing I've noticed is that crisis will expose your theology. And what this judgment reveals is that the majority of people in Israel did not truly know their covenant God. Because if they did, They would have remembered, even in judgment, there's hope. Even when they'd lost all their stuff and all their possessions and all their comfort, they hadn't lost him. They hadn't lost his promises. They had to remember Psalm 86. God is still good. He's still ready to forgive. That even in the day of trouble, God says there, you can call out to me and I'll hear. See, the people, they either didn't believe that anymore or they didn't want that. They'd lost what they truly valued. So for us, I think if we're not extremely careful, we can become so enslaved to our stuff, our things, so enslaved and addicted to comfort that our greatest source of anxiety then comes from even the thought of losing that. So we start to view anyone or anything that might infringe on my comfort as a threat and as an enemy. 
I mean, we live in this constant fear of losing that which we treasure most. I think it's that sort of fear that keeps so many families from going to the nations who are just so afraid. How can we live without all this stuff? How can we live without being in driving distance of our parents? How can we live without air conditioning? How can we live without electricity? How can we live without ESPN? And it keeps so many families from even asking the question, from even considering God might be calling them and sending them to the nations. We stubbornly refuse to go to the nations. But then look what God does in his love and in his mercy and his kindness. He brings the nations to us. We've refused to go. He brings them here. And what's amazing is that you can engage the nations and you don't have to leave America. You don't have to leave Aberdeen. Right? I mean, God is bringing people right here. Had they remained where they were born, they would have had almost no chance to hear the gospel. They would have had almost no chance to meet a Christian. And they're here in Aberdeen, South Dakota. And you know that better than I do. And I'm just pleading with you this morning, don't be so bound up by your fear that you'll start to see them as a threat. Don't be so afraid of losing some some of your comforts that you start to see these nations that are pouring into Aberdeen as your enemies. I mean, what's going to happen when when Garrett leads a bunch of Somali men to Christ and he brings them here? Are y'all going to be okay with that? You're going to be okay sitting next to someone named Abdul Aziz? You're going to be able to sing songs with him right there? You're going to be thinking, but but what if he's part of a sleeper cell? You're going to be all right having Sam's sermons translated into Somali? Or are you going to be sitting there the whole time saying, man, I like this so much better when it was just us? in here. That's slavery. That's bondage. You're always going through life afraid you're going to lose what you love the most. But see, if you value Christ as your treasure, you can throw off that yoke of slavery. John Piper says it like this, when we value Christ above all things, then when all things are taken away from you, you haven't lost what you value most. See, that's the secret to contentment in any circumstances. Because you need to know Christ is just as glorious. He's just as satisfying. He's just as everything I could ever want or need. He's just as much that here in this room, in this place, as He is in some cave in North Korea. God is, Christ is just as precious here as He is when you're rotting away in a prison camp in China. He is just as sufficient for all your needs here as he is when you get kidnapped by Al-Qaeda in West Africa. Did you really believe that? I mean, is Christ so precious to you that all of this, and I mean all of it, could be taken away and you'd still sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Because the only way you can sing that in that moment is if your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, His righteousness. When you understand this, it will keep you from idolatry in times of prosperity, and it will keep you from being crushed in times of suffering and loss. It works both ways. See, this, this happened to Israel. We see it played out. In times of prosperity, it just puffs them up with pride, leads them straight into idolatry. But as soon as that prosperity gets taken away, it crushes them. 
I mean, the most tragic part of this whole picture of destruction is there hidden in verse 10. Did you, did you see it? It says, the people's utter fear of even whispering the Lord's name. They're walking amongst the rubble, walking amongst the dead, shushing one another. Don't even speak the name of the Lord. That's tragic. This is people who had misused and uttered that name so flippantly beforehand, who were so confident that that name would never come against them like it had the other nations. Now they felt his hand against them so much, so greatly, they're afraid to even whisper it. And it shows us the majority of God's covenant people didn't know him. Amos 9 does tell us later, if you, if you keep reading, some were not totally crushed. We see there that God in his grace, he preserves a faithful remnant. It's a remnant who could stand even amongst the rubble and the ashes and still cry out to this name, still call on the name of the Lord. That even when they lost everything, they hadn't lost what they valued most. That their hope was in this same name that all those around them were too afraid to even say. But for most of Israel, their pride, it blinded them to the end. That weeping and broken, that they'd lost their true treasures, they stubbornly refused to call on the name, the only name that could save them. See, pride, it will blind you to your sin. It will blind you to your calling, to the needs of those around you. It will blind you to the nations. But most tragically, perhaps, it will blind you to the only place salvation is found. There's something more ferocious than a hurricane that is bearing down on every one of us. That all of us, Ephesians tells us, are by nature objects of the holy wrath of a holy God. No one, no one can stand in that sort of wrath. No amount of good works, no amount of religious activity is going to matter. And your only hope of escape is to cry out to the Lord. Have mercy on me, a sinner. To call on the name of the Lord. To not shush one another. To not be afraid to whisper it, but to shout it out. Because Romans tells us all who do that, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. Don't, don't let your pride blind you to your need of the saving work of Christ. Don't let your pride bind you to the stuff of this world. See, this same Jesus who saves us, he satisfies us. He's like a treasure you find in a field. And then you go and you sell everything you own. I mean, everything. All this stuff you used to love so much. All these things you used to find your identity in. All these things you used to think, I can't live without this. You now see it as rubbish. And you sell it so that you can have what you truly value. So you can have what is truly treasure. Is Christ our treasure like that this morning? I pray He is for you. Let's pray. Father, I just ask even over these next few moments that you would be ruthless with us out of your love and your kindness to us. Just mine our hearts. Expose us. Expose our pride. Show us places that it's revealing itself. And Lord, that in your grace to us and your kindness to us that you would kill it. You kill it before it blinds us. Kill it before it makes us its slave. And Father, I just pray for this church that it might be full of a people who don't look inward but look up. Whose greatest affection will be for Christ. 
His greatest calling would be to throw everything they have, all their resources, everything they have into the task of making your glory known among all nations. Would you do that now even for your glory, for our good, and for the gospel among the nations? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.